So, I grew up never being able to hide. We were the only black family for miles around living in rural Michigan. In small towns in Michigan, like small towns everywhere, people like to talk. Talk about other people. And we made easy targets. Most of it completely banal. Yeah, yeah, I heard you had some ice cream today in town, did you? Butter pecan, huh? I never did much care for butter pecan myself. I've been more of a vanilla person. Hmm. Everything, my shoes, my dog, my hair, seemed to be at the center of the town conversation, and I hate it. What are you looking at? Mind your business. Yeah, it's a Scooby-Doo lunchbox, like everybody else has. And I wished, I wished I could make them look somewhere else. Well, not today. Because from WNYC Studios, Snap Judgment proudly presents All Eyes on Me. Amazing stories from people who, for whatever reason, are hogging all the attention. My name is Lynn Washington. No, I didn't spray paint my name on the church. When you're listening, the Snap Judgment. Now, have you ever lost yourself so deep in something or someone that you forgot who you were? Imagine if that happened every day. For Joel Salinas, things got particularly intense during his third year of medical school. One of the lectures I had was about the brain And I was just so mesmerized by how beautiful the brain was. And so when it was time for my psychiatry rotation to start, I was really excited and I was really gunning to learn everything I could. On his first day, Joel walked into the psychiatric emergency room. The junior resident that I'm with says, oh, this patient is having a psychotic episode as a part of their mania. He had been fighting with the security guards. He'd been threatening to punch people. Let's go, going to interview him. And he's in this isolated room. And before we even say anything, he jumps out of the chair that he's in and knocks the table and the chair over. The patient was high on cocaine. As soon as he saw Joel and the other resident walk in the room, he turned to them and announced, I have psychotelekinesis, I'm an X-Men, and I'm here to save the world because there's a bomb. And then he looks at me and he says, I have psychotelekinesis and I know you have psychotelekinesis too. My first reaction to that was, how did he know? How does he know that I have this thing that other people don't have? And then he pushes the table over and lunges towards us. And at that moment, the junior resident grabs me by the elbow and we like run out the door, close the door and call security. Security is running into the room and all I hear is shuffling and pushing and bodies up against the wall. And I'm up against the wall with my heart just racing and my mind is reading 
like kind of not knowing where was I, what had just happened. And it was only until the resident who grabbed me by the by the shoulder and says, mm, that's probably not a good patient for you to start with, that I could begin to say, oh, crap. Okay, take a deep breath. Joel isn't really like the other medical students. He has this condition called mere touch synesthesia. My brain immediately tries to recreate the physical experience of whoever I'm looking at in myself as if I were looking at myself in the mirror. I'll be at like a coffee shop working on my, on my laptop and suddenly I'll feel like there's kind of weird fingers in my mouth. I'll be like, where the heck are these fingers coming from? And just in the corner of my eye, just next to me, there's somebody like picking the spinach feta wrap out of their teeth. It's like his brain is making a guess of how something feels. And Joel perceives it as colors, shapes, and numbers. It's intense. My guesses have color and number manifestations of them. He remembers when he was little, he would sit in front of the TV and watch cartoons. And I see Roadrunner sticks out his tongue and I feel like my tongue is sticking out. Or Wile E. Coyote gets hit by a truck and I feel like I'm hit by a truck. Of course, he could just turn the TV off. But then, he started going to school. I found myself really just avoiding people. I went to a high school that was what some people would call kind of in the rough part of town, right? We had metal detector sweeps and, you know, there'd be fights often. And I remember seeing this one fight where these these two girls were really going at it. One had her right hand grabbing the back of the head and hair of the other one while the other girl was doing the exact same thing and they were using their open left hand to claw at each other's faces and seeing that I felt the sensation of a fist just like really digging into the back of my scalp and hair and as they would run their nails against each other's faces feeling as though they were like arrowheads just trailing down my face. Joel preferred to keep to himself, doing homework and reading books off in the corner. I would just observe. I was, I was perpetually this guy that was there but not really there. All that hard work, it paid off. He got into Harvard Medical School, and it was there where he first heard about synesthesia. I just became so curious about the brain and perception. How is it that the way that I react to the world is so so different from, from others. In the classroom, Joel could manage his synesthesia. He knew where to look and what people to avoid. But then in his third year, when he started working with patients, things got way more intense. We were in the workroom on the on the ward when suddenly a code blue alarm goes off. And it's a medical emergency. Code blue, code blue, here's my chance, here's an emergency, let me see how I can help, what I can learn. And and within a few feet, we walk into this reading room, people are crowded around near the ground, and I first see a woman who's in a corner just shrieking in horror. The sound of her voice, to me, was not just the sound of her voice, but it was also kind of a dark mahogany that was like wet. It's the wife of this man who's on the ground. He's in cardiac arrest. The doctors tear open the man's shirt and begin chest compressions. 
I feel like the air is kind of being pushed out of me and then just slowly inflating and then pushed and then slowly kind of filling again with air and then being pushed out and then being refilled again with air. I feel just like the hardness of the linoleum up against my back as well. He watches as they slide a breathing tube down the man's throat. I feel like there's a sharp object being slid down my throat. And then they attach the bag valve, and as they're moving the bag valve, the chest rises on its own, and I'm feeling my chest rising. Joel stood there frozen, while the crowd of doctors shuffled in front of him. And I'm telling myself as it's going on, it's going to be okay. He's going to he's going to be fine. This is what happens. This is normal. Afterwards, we're going to talk about how we saved his life, and we're going to go through the medical facts, and I'll be so much more ready for the next time. But that doesn't happen. The man died right there on the linoleum floor. I have this feeling of just empty. It's just total silence. Like all the physical sensations that were going on before have just stopped. It's like you're in this room by yourself where there's an air conditioner in the background, but then suddenly the air conditioner just stops. And there's this eerie silence. And you don't know when it's going to turn on again or if it's ever going to turn on ever again. And it's that that sensation of just empty silence. I had to force myself to breathe. I couldn't anymore. I was just... I was there on the ground dead with him. I ran around the corner, ran into a private bathroom, and I threw up. And I remember just staring at my reflection after having flushed the toilet, seeing myself, to seeing my face and telling myself that I'm I'm not the one that died. This is my body. Joel splashed his face with cold water, focusing on the feeling of the droplets on his cheeks. As he stood there in the bathroom, in front of the mirror, he started to wonder. If... If I can't handle a death, how am I supposed to handle the rest of my medical career? How am I supposed to be a doctor? How am I supposed to be there for people when they really, really need me, when they really need to trust their doctor? And at that moment, I just told myself, I need to figure this out. I need to figure out how to make this work. I need to see more. Joel went all in. Whenever there was a code blue, he rushed to the scene. I need to see more of the most bloody, the most intense, the most traumatic experiences. There was one time in surgery, they cracked open the chest of a gunshot victim, and the lead surgeon asked Joel to perform the internal cardiac massage. Joel stood there pumping the man's heart with his hands, just trying to feel his own eyebrows before he passed out. I had to focus on one my breath, just breathing, breathing in and out. Here's my tongue in my mouth, here are my shoulders, here's my heart, here are my breaths, here's my belly, here are my hips, here are my knees, here are my ankles, here are my toes. After going through the trauma unit, I felt like, okay, I've seen how bad it can get. So I I began to feel like, okay, I've got a handle over this physical pain, this medical suffering. But what I wasn't ready for was psychological and emotional pain. And that was 
going into the psychiatric unit. That's where Joel encountered the man who said he had telekinesis. And it was at that moment where I was like, I, I can't do psychiatry. I can't go into psychiatry. It was just too scary, and I just didn't know that I could handle it. But there was one rotation where Joel's synesthesia actually helped him with his patients. It was in neurology. And there, he saw thousands of people who were dealing with tumors and seizures and strokes. There were people whose brains were seen as different, kind of like Joel's. I reflexively have some skin in the game. I see someone in pain or in distress, I feel it in me. So I want to make it better. And when I make it better, I feel better too. As much as Joel found satisfaction in making his patients feel better, he wasn't able to do it for himself. I'm here early in my in my medical career, and, I, and it's so important to be credible, to be reputable, to be really grounded in science and in facts. I was just so focused on becoming a really great doctor that I just kept on putting the personal stuff to the side. Joelle had been in one serious relationship, and it didn't go well. I can get really entangled in somebody else's experience. Being around somebody else, another human, can be just so destabilizing. So he swore off dating while he was in medical school. But now, he was almost done with his training. And it seemed like it was only a matter of time before he would meet someone. I decided to do the little rotation out in Seattle. And by the end of it, I decided I wanted to celebrate it. Didn't really have anybody that I could go out with. But a friend of mine said, no, 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 go go out by yourself. I do it all the time. You should just go. So I wandered out in the rain, found a local gay bar, and I got there way, way too early. I was like the only person sitting on a couch, like checking my emails. And eventually people slowly began to wander in. And as the club kind of gets really full, there's people dancing now. It's getting louder and louder. I noticed there's a pair of eyes off in the distance that keeps on looking my way. This is strange. Why is this person staring at me? It's kind of uncomfortable. I'm just going to go say hi and just get it over with. So I walked over, introduced myself, and when he spoke, man, what a smooth voice. It was just deep and just, for me, that felt like warm Nutella. It was just so delicious. Oh, the, the flavor of that voice was so good. And I just kind of melted. He was very tall, and the immediate synesthetic reaction was a great big red-orange five and a tall black nine with little smatterings of kind of light blue fours and sevens. So the, the fours are very friendly and lovely, and I love that number. Sevens are kind of awkward but endearing, and the nines are have this kind of executive presence, kind of this, it's this very tall, kind of dark number. But the red orange five is, a, it, I, I tend to try to avoid fives. There's something just very self-centered about fives. His name was Jordan, and the relationship escalated quickly. After a few months, Jordan moved to Boston, where Joel was completing his residency. They got married after a year or so. And slowly, what Joel had spent the last couple of years trying to prevent started to happen. He was losing himself in Jordan. He kind of insisted on going on vacation a lot to Hawaii. 
and there was uh, one time where I actually had time off, but I needed to stay in the area uh, for the hospital. And, and as he kind of rolled with his bags out the door, the minute the, the door closed, the minute he was out of my, my sight, I felt like I weighed less. I just didn't have a, a, a full sense of myself. And even if I did look in the mirror, um, it was just a, it was a fraction of me. It wasn't the whole of me. Like I, I wasn't complete, uh, like physically complete, unless I saw him. So it, it just felt off. Joel finished his residency. He and Jordan moved into a big two-story house. They were starting to plan a family when Joel found out that Jordan was cheating on him. I got a text from a friend of mine. Said, "Hey, I didn't know that you and Jordan had an open relationship." My reply to that was, "We don't." He was out of town at the time, and he wasn't going to be back in town. I just needed to ask for the divorce. And so I really insisted that, that we needed to talk. And he said, oh, I'm in, the, I'm in between meetings, and I'm going to a dinner, I'm driving on the road. And I said, it just, we just need to talk. And so he said, well, let me just pull the car over, and I'll FaceTime you. And I was in the bedroom. I remember the lights were all out except for the light in the bathroom. And I was sitting on our bed when I could still smell him on our sheets. And I had my laptop on on my lap. I read a whole script from beginning to end that I was just going to read. That I kind of told myself that no matter what happens, just keep reading, keep breathing, and keep reading. And so he, he called via FaceTime. From the screen of his laptop, he could see Jordan sitting in his car. I felt my back against a leather car seat, my head against the headrest. I felt the seatbelt um, coming across my chest. Every time I would look away from the script and look at him, I could see his face becoming more flush and then feeling my face as if it were becoming flush. His breathing kind of picking up, his shoulders raising and lowering, and my shoulders were already raising and lowering, but now I had this added layer of another pair of shoulders raising and lowering. Like a real, real echo chamber where things just get louder and louder and louder between the two of us. What what kind of kept me on script was just my heartbeat. This is my heart, my heart, my heart, my heart, my heartbeat. And the minute I would look back up to the screen, it would be kind of all over it. And there's this kind of silence this is not this is not true this is not going to happen I don't have to do it and I was as I was looking at him I noticed that silence just gave me just enough room to to see that in in the corner the whole time my fate had, had been there as well oh I'm here too and as I saw myself in this, all the physical sensations that I was experiencing from seeing this person kind of sitting in the bed, I was feeling those things not just because my brain was making me recreate it, but because I w- that was me. Which kind of jarred me enough to kind of realize that I needed to, to do this for that person in, in the video, to, to do that for, for me. I said I wanted a divorce. 
God, it hurt. <laughs> there was just a lot of pain. Um, the, I mean, the minute I pressed the you know, red phone button, um, the video just turned to just me instead of him. And I just closed the laptop and just balled up on my knees on my bed and just bawled. Joel and Jordan got a divorce. He moved out of the big house and back to Boston. Now I have my own apartment. I didn't really bring much from the house that we were together because I wanted to start over. And I made sure that my house had a lot of mirrors in it so I could see my reflection because it, it just helps to remind myself that I'm here, that I'm myself, that I'm not this kind of invisible blob that that can easily take on the experience of other people that I also am in my own body. Big thanks to Joelle Salinas, who was a neurologist at Harvard Medical School and the Massachusetts General Hospital Department of Neurology. He is also the author of Mirror Touch. We'll have more at snapjudgment.org. That story was produced by Adiza Egan. Now when Snap Judgment returns, life after death in the most snap way possible. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the All Eyes on Me episode. Our next story comes to us straight from the heartland. Although for reasons that are about to become clear, that might be hard to believe. I'll let Ellen Spencer take it from here. Snap. I am Ellen Spencer, and I live in Indianapolis, Indiana. I was born in Indianapolis, Indiana. I don't exactly sound like I was born in Indianapolis, Indiana, and uh, I get all the time where you are from and people's not to believe me when I tell them, but I am from here. Landlocked Indiana, we don't have many foreigners traveling through like maybe Los Angeles, Chicago, or New York. I had a French lady get very angry at me once. She thought I was dissing the homeland, we were have primary elections, and I was helping, which, by the way, only an American citizen could do. So it was my job to ask everybody to please to hand me their picture ID. And so I asked a lady if she could to please put her ID onto the table, and that's how I pronounced it then. And then she started to speak in the French to me. Obviously, since she's voting, she's a naturalized citizen. But she was telling me she was from here and there and all this, and she, but she's, she's carrying on in, in uh, French. I tell you what, I don't know any French. I knew enough to say I don't parlez vous. She got angry at me. And uh, there was a line of people, made quite a scene. And I tell you, I, 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 I apologize. I, you know, whenever anybody gets angry at me, I don't get angry back. It does no good. I just say, hey, i sorry you can't accept it, but again, facts are facts. I am not French. I don't even speak the French. Six years ago, I was at my computer working on a project. Got a very, very bad migraine. 
but it was the numbness that was striking to me. It was, it started at the tip of my chin. I went to my lips. By the time she gets to my lips, I'm noticing it. I start moving my head around, uh, slapping myself in the face, you know, tapping. And I uh, was doing dishes late that night, and boy, did I get hammered with a severe pain at the back of the head, like somebody trying to chop my head off. It was really strange. Anyway, the next day I go to the hospital. My husband to call me about two hours after I'm at the ER to check, and he asks me, he says, what did they give you? And I go, nursing, I just have saline only. He said, you are slurring your speech like they give you a strong medication. And then the neurologist, what is my diagnosis, I ask him. He goes, well, slurred speech of unknown origin. And I'm thinking to myself, I just spent two, three days in the hospital, and my diagnosis is something I could have diagnosed myself with. You sound funny, and you got a headache, and I don't know why. I would say it started to transition, as you would say, to an accent within 48 hours. Every day, I'm experimenting to try to figure it out on my own. Uh, You want to say the word weird. I feel weird. I can say it now, but back then, I feel weird. Okay, that makes no sense to people. They're trying to figure it out. Okay, that's fine. I'll pick a different word. Shrine. Uh-oh. Defront. Oh, my gosh. You get running out of, of synonyms after a while. He's like, give me Cesaris. Then you're like, okay, can't even say Cesaris. If you could imagine to look in the mirror and see your own lips are moving, but that's not your voice coming out. This is not the voice when I talk to my little girl and read her her bedtime story. This is not the voice when I stood in front of a church and proclaimed my my devotion to my husband and says, I will love you forever and always. I died. My speech was gone. It fueled me to seek out even more information on the net. Boom, all of a sudden I hit one video in particular. Uh, It was called My Strange Brain. And it was about a lady, Cat Lockett was her name, C-A-T-H, I cannot say the T-H's very well. And uh, she sounded French, and same similar kind of things to happen, just boom, all of a sudden they are sounding like a foreigner in their own country. And this thing was called foreign accent syndrome. It's so rare, doctors not have heard of it before. So if you go to a doctor for answers, people don't believe. People would say, you're making it up, it's fake, uh, she sounds stupid, uh, but there's no question, something happened in my brain. I am not a psych case, I'm not a nut, I'm not stupid. Uh, say you are a, an actor in a play and you are taking on a southern accent or something, you will flub up once in a while, somewhere along the line. I live this 24-7, I don't flub it up, okay? 
I go to church about a week later. It was like the first time I had to really go out. Singing is very, very special to me because I have chronic pain, that I'm allergic to all pain medication. One of the ways I cope with the pain is to sing. I am singing in front of a church full of people uh, 10 days after I am having this to happen for me. A few days before we actually uh, do this in front of the church, we practice the songs. I am scared that I'm going to get up to the microphone and not be able to sing. And the very first song that comes up is a song that's very special to me over the years. And it's called Shout to the Lord. Fran is playing the intro on the piano. Here it comes. Is it going to work or not? I take my breath and I start to sing the song and it came out. My Jesus, my Savior, for there is none like you. And it sounded the same way it always sounded when I sang before my voice to change. And I tell you, it was just like time stood still. I continued to sing, but I was really choked up. And I mean, I managed to keep it. And then by the time I got to that second verse with that, that line that I love, forever I love you, forever I'll stand, I didn't need no microphone to fill that whole sanctuary. It came from my toes all the way out to my voice and up to heaven. So then I started to inspect what's different about my singing. Wait a minute, how it is I can sing but not to be able to speak? Well, I discovered for me that, oh boy, I must to cry from saying this, I can sing in my head a sentence and be able to speak in my old speech. So if I say, even though I sound like a foreigner, I am a Hoosier and grew up on a farm. And then I'm singing it in my head right now. Even though I sound like a foreigner, I was born and raised in Indiana and grew up on a farm. I'm Ellen Spencer, and I have foreign accent syndrome. Uh, did you hear it starting to slip back on the, uh, probably about the word syndrome? Did you hear it coming back? I can do that only for a little bit, but I tell you, it is such a precious gift when that piece of you is taken away. And that's how it feels. It felt like everything else in the last previous two weeks had been, I'm, I'm lost. I have a piece of me still. I have to act to be myself. I have to put the same amount of effort into getting back to my original voice that somebody else would have to in getting to a foreign voice. Only in my case, all I got to do is sing it in my head because I still sing the same. But I can't go around, you know, uh, making this a, uh, a, a living musical all my life, go down singing, you know. I, I never really cared for musicals anyway. But could you imagine? I'm here to get some bread. You know, is it, how are you going to do stuff like that? 
right now I just celebrated what we call an FAS birthday number six. So it's been six years with this voice I'm speaking right now. And nobody to this day can explain why. Nobody can help me with it. I'm kind of on my own. I haven't given up on getting back to my old voice, but I haven't stopped living because I don't have it. And if, from this moment on, I have to go on with just a new voice, then it's what it is. It's my voice. All of my days, I want to praise the wonders of your Thanks, Ellen Spencer, for sharing your story at The Snap. It was produced by Julia DeWitt with original sound design and score. Did you dig that last lick? Uh, by our own Pat Masidi Miller. In just a moment, what happens if you are in the right place at exactly the right time? When Snap Judgment, the All Eyes on Me episode continues. Stay tuned. From WNYC Studios, you're listening to Snap Judgment, the All Eyes on Me special. My name is Glenn Washington, and our next story is about what happens when you have your dream job. And in that dream job, you have a chance to meet your personal hero and thousands upon thousands of people are watching. Snap. This story starts back in the early 70s New York, when Merritt Riley was the Yankees' biggest 11-year-old fan. I was hardcore. Well, actually, my mom and dad were big Yankee fans, so I really didn't have a choice to tell you the truth. It was always extra special to be at a game, smelling the grass and smelling the popcorn. You know, always sought to get autographs and meet the players. But at the games, I'd be sitting there watching the bat boy, retrieving foul balls, and I always wondered, how, how in God's name can I become that kid? I figured, you know, what the hell, I'll uh, give it a shot, and I wrote a, a letter to Yankee Stadium. I didn't address it to anybody in particular, just hoping it would get a response. And he did, pretty quickly from a bat boy named Joe. Being the kid I was, I, I got the letter and I was so excited. It was written on Yankee letterhead stationery. And I was like, wow, this, you know, this is it. I showed my mom and dad. Bat boy Joe wrote back and said, in order to join the bat boy club, you had to have good grades, athletic ability, be 16 years old. Merritt only met one of these requirements. He was a smarty pants. Yeah. But over the next five years, Merritt set his little mind and body to it. And bada bing, bada boom, Joe hooked him up and Merritt became a Yankee bat boy. And even before he did any bat boy things, it changed his life. I'm kind of making fun of myself here. When I was in high school, I was, I was like a little nerdy kid, you know? I wasn't really, uh, you know, one of those popular kids, you know what I mean? All of a sudden, everybody wanted to be my friend. Kids that I thought would never talk to me because they were the cool kids, they were the jocks. You know, it's funny because a lot of those kids are friends still today. Best part of the job was being around 
players that, you know, a year or two before I was watching on TV and only dreaming that it would be like a dream to, you know, to meet these people, you know, and now I'm in the same locker room as them. Being a bat boy is no easy work. Merritt shined all the players' cleats, did the laundry, and during practices, he'd shag fly balls. But his most important job was during the game. During the game, you have one responsibility. Once that player that's at home plate hits the ball, whether it's a base hit or, a, or an out, your main and only responsibility is to get that bat and get it right back to the dugout. Once in the dugout, all Merritt had to do was return the bat to the bat container where the other bats hung out. During the game, the Yankees were very, very strict about not being part of the game, you know, being invisible, really. Now, Merritt was planning the rest of his life and career from his gig as a bat boy. If he did a good job, his plan was to become an umpire. Well, that was the hope, at least until July 24th, 1983, Yankee Stadium. Merritt's beloved Yankees were facing one of their biggest rivals, the Kansas City Royals. It was a Sunday afternoon in July, and back then the Yanks in Kansas City, they, they saw each other a lot in the playoffs, and it was a packed house. You know, it was hot. It was a loud, you know, boisterous crowd. Now, this game was extra special to Merritt, not because of the heated rivalry, but because of one player on the Royals, the superstar hitter, George Brett. For whatever reason, George Brett took a liking to me. Even though he was a superstar, he was like a regular guy. He'd, you know, clown around with everybody in the clubhouse. He'd always be breaking my traps about one thing or another. And, you know, kidding around, not, not, not mean. He had a nickname for me, and, he, and it was Spalding from um, Caddyshack. Spalding Smales. Not the coolest nickname. Spalding from the movie Caddyshack is a spoiled brat infamous for picking his nose and eating it. You know what? It wasn't like I liked the nickname. I just liked that he noticed me enough to have a nickname for me. You know, he made you feel important. That made me like him, you know? He definitely became my favorite. Yankee fan listeners, don't worry about it. His allegiance is still with you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, George Brett was one of those guys that I would secretly root for. As long as the Yankees would win the game, I was rooting for George Brett to do well. There weren't other players I could say that about that were not on the Yankees. All right, so back to the game. First inning. Second, third, fourth. The game didn't stand out for any reason. Seventh inning. Eighth inning. All right, here we are on the top of the ninth inning. The Yanks are up 4-3. And it's a very close game with the Royals at bat with two outs and a runner on base. You know, you figured the the Yanks are going to win this game. You have the Yankee closer, Goose Gossage, who basically was lights out once they brought him in. But a player from Kansas City gets on base, and none other than my favorite players in baseball, George Brett. The crowd's on its feet. George Brett is known as the Yankee killer, but also well-known as the hemorrhoid guy. Back in the 1980 World Series, George had to leave a game early because hemorrhoid pain. Since then, every time he came up to bat, he was the butt of all jokes and jeers. The crowd is, is going wild, jeering at George Brett because of a hemorrhoidal issue. I got a big conflict going on in my head. You know, I'm rooting for this guy, George Brett, to get the big hit. But at the same time, I want to see my, my favorite team win the game. So George Brett's at bat, and Goose Gossage leans in and delivers a pitch. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. And I could tell just from the sound of the ball hitting the bat, this thing was going to leave the ballpark. There was a very quick moment of silence, and then all of a sudden the place went crazy. And now the Royals have the one-run lead. So right away, I, I get up the home plate. I grab the bat. At the time, I know that I have to get that back back to the dugout. But I said, you know what? 
I know I'll probably get in trouble, but I'm going to wait there. I'm going to wait there with the bat. And I want to high five him when he comes around because he was such a good person to me. I wanted to show that I'm a Yankee fan, but I'm a George Brett fan. While I'm standing there at home plate waiting for George Brett to round the bases, the manager of the Yankees, Billy Martin, is on the top step of the dugout, the veins of his neck just just like protruding from his neck because he was screaming for his catcher to check the bat, check the bat. Right after that, the catcher of the Yankees rips it out of my hand and he begins to inspect the bat for cork. When players cork their bats, makes the ball travel further. It's cheating. The catcher checked it for cork and then saw that there was no cork and he just dropped it on the ground right next to me. Gotta be honest, I didn't know what was going on. At this time, George Brett now crosses home plate and just went right to the dugout. I did not get to high-five him because now I was so caught up in what was going on. Right after that, the manager ends up at home plate screaming, I want that bat checked. I want it checked well, for pine tar. What about Frank is that he's got too much pine tar and uh, the umpires are going to get together. George Brett looking around and wanting to know what's going on. and the umpires are going Pine tar to is a sticky substance thing. that players put on their wooden bats. Basically, it helps them grip the bat, swing the bat, and hopefully hit a home run. That pine tar up that far on the bat. First time in a long, long time I've seen the umpires huddle this long and have a meeting over it. Both they're off, they're feeling it, see, as if there's a, some sticky stuff around there. But there is a limit to how much pine tar one can use. 18 inches from the tip of the handle, about the width of home plate. The umpires take the bat, they lay it down against home plate to determine if the pine tar was too far up the handle of the bat. Across home plate. Well, I, I've never. I've never seen this. I never have either. The umpires struggle to make a call, and that's because the pine tar rule, it's one of those obscure rules that's rarely enforced. And here, the crafty Yankee manager was waiting until the perfect moment to bring this tiny rule down on George's head. I'm thinking if I would have just picked up the bat and gotten it out of there instead of waiting at home to play for the high five, none of this would be happening. That's Nick Bremigan with the this bat This is right going to be an interesting call. Brett isn't sure whether he has a home run yet or not. At that point, I stopped slinking away back towards the dugout, walking backwards. And the players were angry. And at one point, George Brett, who's now pacing up and down the dugout like a raging bull, he says, all I know is that if they call me out, you're going to see four dead umpires. Four dead umpires. Four dead umpires. And almost right after that, almost immediately after that, the whole paid umpire looks towards where the Kansas City Royals were and makes the outside. They might be going to call George Brett out. Well, he is. He's out. Yes, sir. Brett is out. Look at, look at this. Brett is out. And he's demon mad. George Brett out. just charges out of the dugout like a maniac. First couple of buttons on his shirt were, were like open. You know, his hair was a disaster. Forcibly restrained from hitting plate umpire Tim McClellan. Oh, it was crazy. It was crazy. Now I position myself inside the dugout, at which point the players from Kansas City are yelling at me. Why the hell didn't you get the bat? I was, <laughs> you could, you could edit this. I, I was my pants. <laughs> 50,000 people and all these big baseball players. And I was scared. I'm not afraid to say that. I was scared. At this point, all hell breaks loose. Yankee Stadium security, the guys in suits and ties, they're out on the field. And one of them comes up behind the umpire and swipes the bat out of the umpire's hand. 
and makes a beeline for the dugout, at which point a pitcher for the Kansas City Royals, Gaylord Perry, sneaks up behind the Yankee Stadium security and swipes the bat out of his hand. Well, a Yankee security person and one of the umpires quickly are chasing whoever has the bat. Jose Martinez is holding Brett. Bobby, I've never seen this in my life. It was somewhat of a movie. It really was. It kept getting worse for me. It was like a bad nightmare. It kept getting worse. The game ends. Yankee fans celebrate as they leave the stadium, while the Royal fans are still stunned. The players are gone. The umpires are gone. The whole swarm of people is gone. I'm in the dugout by myself. One of the clubhouse managers comes down and says, you don't want to go up into that locker room right now. The Kansas City Royals don't want to see you. They're pissed off at you. So Merritt begins his post-game duties, knocking the mud out of spikes, cleaning up the Yankee locker room. At that point, I thought it was the end of the world. This is the biggest thing ever that's happened to me. The manager of the clubhouse, where the Royals were, came down and said, look, it's safe to go back down to the locker room. The guys that were angry are gone. So come on down. Uh, all I could tell you was I was real nervous. I entered the locker room very, very uh, timidly. And I opened the door to the locker room. On the left-hand side is a swarm of reporters. And guess who's in the center of this swarm? <laughs> you guessed it. Superstar George Brett. The one guy I don't want to see, and he's the only, one of the only ones left. So I try to make my way towards the back of the locker room. I figured he wouldn't see me because there were so many reporters around him. And I go walking through, and, you know, you couldn't have planned it any better. The reporters move out of the way, and all of a sudden, he locks eyes with me. And I'm thinking, holy you got to be kidding. I thought I was dead. <laughs> yeah, I figured uh, my heart was broken already. He's, <laughs> so he's like, Spaulding. And I stopped dead in my tracks. And I didn't expect that at all, that he would be in the mood where he's calling me by my nickname, you know? And I was like, yeah. And he looks at me, he says, why didn't you get the back? And I'm like, holy Christ, what do I say? What do I say? You know, I'm speaking to a Major League Baseball player. I'm 17, 16, 17 years old. And before I could answer, <laughs> he, he just started laughing. He said, I'm only, I'm only kidding around with you. He goes, don't worry about it. And then he said, but you do owe me. And I remember saying, as clear as day, whatever you want, whatever you need. So he says to me, do you want me to tell you what he says to me? Uh, he says to me, the next time I'm back here in New York City, he goes, you're going to get me laid. <laughs> and I said to him, you want me to get you laid? And I started laughing. You know, and he laughed and, and that was pretty much it. After the pine tar game, people called George Brett a cheater for using a special bat. But George, he got the last laugh. Eventually, the pine tar ruling was overturned, George got his home run back, and the Royals won the game. Oh, and remember the hemorrhoids nickname? That was now behind him. As a result of the pine tar game, that nickname was forever gone. People don't even know about it, really. I know this whole incident could be blamed on my hero worship of George Brett. You know, any other player, I, I went up and retrieved bats probably thousands of times. The one time I didn't do it, this uh, baseball history was made. He's out. Yes, sir. Brett is out. Look, look at this. Uh, Demon Matt. He is out. Bobby, I've never seen this in my life. 
And still to this day, I still have not gotten that high five I was looking for. <laughs> Thank you, Merritt Riley, for sharing that story with the snap. Merritt still considers himself the Yankees' biggest fan. And a big shout out as well to Daniel Barbarisi from the Wall Street Journal for bringing us that story. We'll have a link to his story on our website, snapjudgment.org. Original sound design by Renzo Gorio, and that piece was produced by Davey Kim. It's about that time. But don't start fights. Don't crash cars. Why? Because if you miss even a moment there is more snap where this came from get the amazing podcast on itunes on stitcher wherever you get podcasts get this one snapjudgment.org now if you haven't heard the news 13 brand new episodes of the hit podcast spook drop now we're marching down toward a halloween finale spookpodcast.org be afraid and do not turn out the lights Snap was brought to you by the team that is never late, but always on time. Please shower him in diamonds and pearls. The Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Pat Mercedes Miller looks into your heart. Anna Sussman looks into your mind. Adiza Egan looks into your soul. Renzo Gorio looks good. Look, Liz Mack. Eliza Smith looks. Erica Lance likes. John Facile loves. Taylor Decott laughs. Nancy Lopez lucked out while Jasmine Aguilera has a file with your name on it. And you may not have heard, but Russian covert operatives have uncovered that this is not the news. No way is this the news they say. In fact, you could take the orange juice out of the refrigerator, drink every cold, delicious drop directly from the carton, and put the empty carton back in the fridge and you will still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is WNYC.